Well, good morning. Welcome to Canyon Hills. It is my honor to be before you this morning. I'm so glad to see all of you here physically and those of you watching online. Thank you for bringing us into your homes. I'm really excited to be here this morning. My name is Pastor Carlos, and today, you know, today is a special day. Today we celebrate the amazing news that Christ has risen from the dead. In fact, all of you guys are dressed up. Some of you guys are not. You know who you are. You guys should work on that. You know, moments like these, they really are unique. They're, they're a gift from God. And I don't know about you, but I just feel like this Easter is a little different. Every Easter we celebrate, every Easter we, we know is special. But there's something about today for me, I don't know if you can relate, but for me that we've been through such a mess that this is different. It feels different to me. They are a gift from God. And, and I believe that God has brought you and God has brought you into this moment because the resurrection the resurrection changes everything. We've had a crazy year. So for those of you that may be searching for hope, for those of you that might maybe have lost heart, for those of you that have put their dreams on hold, I want you to know and I want to tell you that the resurrection changes everything. You know, for those of you have, that think that their past disqualifies them or that their best days are behind them, the resurrection changes everything. And I know some of you may be tired and broken or hungry and thirsty and, and lost and maybe found. Just know this morning, it is a special day. It is a new beginning. It is like spring is in the air. It's new. Can you feel it? Because the resurrection changes everything. So in these next few moments, I invite you to encounter the risen king with me. The life he is offering, you see, it is abundant. And it is abundant now and forever. And Jesus, folks, Jesus is closer than you can imagine. You know why? Because he is here right now. And folks, he is risen. Amen? Amen. You guys are going to have to help me out because it, I'm, uh, it's exciting news for me. He is risen. Amen? Amen? Thank you. So welcome to this moment. Welcome. I love how the video put it, to the story of stories. Welcome to Easter. And today we're going to be in the gospel of the book of Matthew, chapter 26 to be specific. But before I, I read that part of scripture, I want to give you some context. This part of scripture occurs right before the crucifixion. At this place, what is known as the Last Supper, where Jesus is gathered with his best friends, with his most intimate friends. And you can say that he was almost gathered around the table in a life group or in a care group. And he was having this very heartfelt conversation with, with his most intimate friends. And he knew what was about to happen. His disciples didn't know, but he knew what was about to come. And the agony that he was about to endure on the cross. And if you can imagine up until this point, for 33 years, Jesus had been obeying the Father. And again, he knows the torture that is about to come. And at that moment, imagine that. He looks around and he sees one of his best friends. His name was Judas, who was about to betray him. And then symbolically, he takes a piece of bread and he breaks it. And can you imagine the emotion again? Because he knew what was about to happen that he would have had when he said, this bread is like my body and it is going to be broken for you. And then he held a cup of wine. And he said, this cup is the blood of the new covenant. And the disciples were thinking at this point, what is this man talking about? They had no clue. And he says, this represents my blood, which is about to be shed for you. And then he tells them and he tells us that whenever you do this, 
now and in years to come, do this in remembrance of me. Because he knew what was about to happen, what he was about to endure. And there are times in our life, like here with the disciple, that Jesus is preparing us for something that we don't know yet or understand. And it often takes us to look back into our situation to know that God was at work and that he might have been preparing us for something we didn't know or understand at the time. And just like the resurrection where he took the worst death imaginable to free us, to free the world from the bondage of sin, he is doing the same with us on a daily basis. And then he takes his disciples, the Bible says, to this place called the Garden of Gethsemane which when you look up the meaning of that, it means the crushing. And again, he says to his closest friends, hey, you guys sit here while I go and pray? Because Jesus at that moment needed some intimate time with the Father. And this is where we pick up the scripture. Matthew chapter 26, verse 38. And then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Can you guys feel the emotion as he would have said that? And then he says, stay here and keep watch with me. And, and I say that because I, I, there has to be somebody in this room or listening to the sound of my voice right now that may feel that way right now. That may feel that their soul is overwhelmed with anxiety or exhaustion. I keep hearing from people that I'm just tired of all of this. And then Jesus uses the strongest metaphor. My soul, it aches. It hurts. It is grieving. I am overwhelmed to the point of death. Another gospel writer, another writer of the, one of the books of the Bible says that when he was sweating, that he was, it was mixed with blood and th that he was in just pure agony. So imagine Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane praying and he goes to his knees. And then in verse 39, it says, going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, my father, oh, this prayer, you guys have to listen to this prayer. He says, my father, if... If it is possible, may, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. This cup, again, was you study, it was known as the cup of suffering. And he's saying, may what I am called to endure in the next few hours, can you remove that from me, God? I mean, I, I really don't want to go through that. I, I know what's coming. I am begging you. I am overwhelmed to the point of death. And he says, if it is possible, and then he says, yet not as I will, but as you will. And then he returns to his closest friends, his disciples, and he finds them sleeping. And I'm visualizing Jesus, you know, maybe he doesn't think like me, but he's, you know, I gave you one job. Your job was to stay awake, and you couldn't do that one thing. Now, in their defense, I don't know if it happens to you, but it happens to me all the time. When I'm praying sometimes and I'm tired, I, it's hard to stay awake, and I fall asleep praying. It's happened to me more than once. But in his greatest need in this moment was for his closest friends. And think about it. It's the same thing with us. In our greatest needs, who do we want? We want our loved ones. We want our closest people to be there sympathetic and understanding and to pray for us. And that's exactly what Jesus felt at that moment. But here, Jesus come back, and he says, I need you to be with me. Stay awake and watch. And what I find so interesting about this scripture is that we have Jesus here who could raise people from the dead, Jesus who could heal the sick, Jesus who could calm the storms, but he could not, and he would not control his disciples because he gave them free will to choose. 
just like he gives us free will to choose him or not. So I'm curious this morning, how many of you like to be in control? Anybody want to raise their hand? I'm, I don't know. I, I'm there. You know, in fact, some of you can type in the comments. You, want to, you just want to own it, just type it. Just put a little thumbs up. Put something like, that's me. I, I like to be in control. Because I think for all of you, because I think we all want to be in control to some degree, that means that this past season, like for me, was probably very frustrating because we felt like everything was going crazy. And I know some of you may not even realize and you may say, hey, I'm not really controlling. I'm just aggressively helpful. <laughs> or I'm just thoroughly organized. You know, we, we say all these things, but why don't we just own it? Can we just agree that we all like to control? I mean, some of you may even make coffee nervous. That's how controlling you are. <laughs> but I think all of us are grieving the loss of control. Because I'm used to being able to do what I want to do and I haven't been able to. And I know things are getting better. I'm grateful for that. But we all understand and we all know that we have a long way to go. And as I think back, there are so many things. But honestly, I go back and I think of just, just the students alone. You know, these poor students who have missed prom and graduation and missed their whole senior years, whether it's high school or college. And weddings have to be postponed. I mean, I can just go on. The list goes on and on and on. I mean, now people can't wait to take a weekend off and travel with me. They might be traveling right now. A UCLA researcher called it this. She called it the illusion of control. Many of us are grieving the illusion that we were actually in control when we know that we really aren't. And the illusion of control is defined as the cognitive bias that leads us to believe that we have control over an outcome when we really don't. It is a bias to think that we can control more than we can actually control, and we overestimate our ability to what really is a bunch of uncontrollable events. And here's the big problem that, and I don't know if you deal with it, but the more that we try to control, the more that we're afraid of losing control. And the more that we're afraid of losing control, the more that we try to control. And this vicious cycle just keeps repeating itself. And I think for so many people today, we're grieving that loss. It's not just of real control, but the illusion that we're in control. You know, we try to control our jobs, but we understand that at any moment we can get fired. In fact, some people were. We understand even if you're a business owner, customers can fire you. And if this season has taught us anything is that you can go bankrupt because we saw a lot of offices closing. Talk about our health. We try to control our health. And again, if anything has taught us this past season is that we're not in control of our health. Trying to control your kids, I mean, even with the best of intentions, our kids can choose to be knuckleheads and go astray. I have a few of those. Love you guys. Anyway, relationships. We try to control our relationships. If you try to control your relationship, it makes it for a bad relationship. We try to control people's perception of us, so we say and do and we buy things so that people can think of us in a certain way. And I, and I also think there's a big difference between thinking that we have control in our routines. Because people have routines that are set, they're good routines, they're, they're routines that will give us discipline, and then that gives us the false illusion that we have control. Because a routine generally means that we do the same thing day in and day out which means that we're comfortable and that we're set. But then when times of trial hit, 
when this season that we just went through hits and when the illusion of control becomes apparent in our life, we are stretched and ultimately we are forced to choose. Do we continue to try to control or do we surrender? And it's messy. But that is the struggle that is at work within us, trying to control our outcomes versus total surrender. And Jesus here offers a prayer that shows the most powerful words of surrender. And in verse 42, as we read on, he says, he went away a second time and prayed. The first time he goes and he catches his disciples sleeping. So he says, I'm going to go again. I'm going to try this again, which tells me that sometimes surrender is not just a one-time event. Sometimes you need to go back to God a second time before it works. And he goes a second time and then he prays again. He says, my father... There's that prayer again. If it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Father, if we can do it a different way again, I'd love to do it a different way. Yet, not my will, but your will be done. So to those of you, I'm talking to myself as well, grieving the loss of the illusion of control, my fellow control freaks, listen to me. Pay close attention and embrace this truth this morning that you don't always have the power to control, but you always have the power to surrender. You don't always have the power to control, but you always have the power to surrender. You know, during the season where many people are wondering, where is God during all of this mess? Did God allow this? Can God use it? Can I trust him in the middle of this? Where is God when life is hard? It's an age-old question. Researchers did some studies on the younger generation's belief about God. And I just want to ask, I'm not going to put you on the spot, but how many of you guys are under 30? Come on, just raise your hand. I'm not going to embarrass you. Totally kidding. I'm going to throw you under the bus in a minute. Um, I won't, I promise. For those of you that are younger... This is typically true, not always true, but researchers say that the default religion in this country for those who are younger is something called MTD. And we've talked about this before. MTD stands for Moralistic Therapeutic Deism. So if you're under 30, you will typically believe in some version of Moralistic Therapeutic Deism. Moralistic essentially equates religion with being good with being moral and nice. So if you're part of the younger generation, a typical belief would be that you're a religious person, which means that you're generally a good person. You're not going to judge people. You're not going to be arrogant. You're going to try to help people. You're going to be moral. You're going to be a nice person. Therapeutic believes that faith is a means to improve your life. In other words, if you're a religious person, then religion should make your life better. And if I surrender my life to God, then life should be easier and my life should be better. Deism, you see, is the belief that God is real, but he's not really that involved unless you really, really need him. He's there, but he's not going to get involved in our daily activities. So to summarize, the more common belief in this emerging generation is that mostly uninvolved God exists to make our lives better. So suddenly, through the season that we just went through, we have a lot of people going through life believing in some form of this statement. That because I go to church, and because I read my Bible, or I do something good, or I help somebody in need, or I give something, my faith in God should make me happy, healthier, 
comfortable and lead a trouble-free life. But I think you guys see the problem with this. If God wants me to be happy and I'm not, then either God failed, he doesn't exist, or I did something wrong. If God wants my life to be better and lead an easy, free, troubled life, and suddenly through this season, I find obstacles and trials and trouble, either God is not really good, God's not really involved, God let me down, he doesn't exist, or I screwed up along the way. I mean, what if I surrender my will to God and he doesn't heal me or heal my loved ones? What if I'm trying to seek God and I follow him, but he doesn't fix my marriage and my husband still seems like he is possessed by seven demons? What about that? Some of you ladies are saying, amen. What do I do if I'm seeking God's will and I'm trying to follow Jesus and I'm praying and yet life still seems to be so hard? Statistics show that when people walk away from the faith or they walk away from the church, it is usually related to something difficult that happened in their life that they couldn't reconcile with God. But I want you to know this this morning, that God's will is rarely easy, but it is always good. You know, I I doubt many of you can think of anything really worthwhile or life-changing that was easy in your life. The easiest example is you moms understand that one of the most beautiful things in the world, the birth of a baby carries so much pain and suffering right before. Some of you who are married and been married for a long time know that getting married, staying married can be difficult. It has its ups and downs. It's frustrating at times, but a long, successful marriage is good. Parenting can be hard. Your kids can go astray. It is difficult, but then we have those proud parent moments once in a while, and we realize that it is good. And it may not feel good in some moments, but our God is working in all things for the good of those who love him according to his glorious purposes for your life. His word, you see, is rarely easy, but it is always good. A day like today reminds us of that. In fact, it wasn't easy for Jesus. And if you take Jesus and you go back a generation and you think about his mom... I mean, if you don't know her story, some of you should come back for Christmas where we are going to read from the, from the book of Luke. And to her, an angel appears to her and says, hey, you're going to be with child. You're going to give birth to a son. His name is going to be Jesus. And he's going to be the savior of the world. And then he prays essentially, she prays essentially the same prayer of surrender when Jesus said, may your will be done. What Mary prayed, she said, may it be done unto me according to your word. The same thing. In other words, I surrender. Whatever your will is, God, I want your will. And think about how easy it was for her. She was pretty successful. She gave birth to a son. She raised him. He was perfect. How about that? What was her reward? She watched her son strip naked, suffering for the sins that he didn't commit. She watched him take his last breath on the cross. And she couldn't do anything to stop it. God's will is not always easy, but it's always good. Jesus, he never wronged anybody. He was completely without sin, holy, perfect in every way. He was betrayed by one of his very own, handed over, beaten, and whipped. 
They forced him to carry a cross. They drove stakes between his hands and his feet, and they put a crown on his head, and they hung this innocent man. And all he did was show love as he hung on the cross. And if that wasn't enough, they spat on him, they pierced him, and they cursed him. And again, what's so interesting as you read this is that Jesus, he had the power to take control. Had he been a control freak like me, I mean, if it had been me, I would have wiped the whole place out. Because he had legions of angels at his disposal. When creation was mocking the creator, he looked up to heaven and he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And he says, it is finished. I've done what you sent me to do. And, and in the ultimate moment of surrender, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he said this, he breathed his last. And the world went dark. And the earth shook. And the table veil ripped. And the disciples scattered. God's will is not always easy. But three days later, oh, man. Three days later, God showed that he is always good. Amen? Thank you, two people. When some woman went to check on the tomb and they arrived, the stone that was meant to keep the body inside had been rolled away. And when they looked inside the tomb, the body of Jesus wasn't there. Because our God raised Jesus from the dead, defeating death, hell, and the power of the grave. And the Bible, you see, records 500, five, think about it, 500 witnesses seeing Jesus after his crucifixion. And, and I mention this because there are some who don't believe that that even happened. 500 people is a lot of people to be in cahoots, don't you think? I mean, imagine just trying to get this room to agree on the same event at the same time and how it happened. And not only for me, if you take a look at those 500 witnesses, they believe so fervently that many of them and a lot of them were willing to die for their belief. And some people may think, hey, what's to say the Bible is true in the first place? And I always think on the practical side, and I think of philosophers like Aristotle, and I think of like, well, we don't deny Aristotle's works. Why is that? Well, because there's about... A thousand manuscripts that we can see of Aristotle's work. And they all date about 1,400 years after they found his, after they, he was alive. And they found his works and they're like, yeah, he must have lived. What he said was true because we have a thousand manuscripts. In contrast, there is 5,000 Greek manuscripts, 8,000 Latin manuscripts, 1,000 other manuscripts in different languages, Syriac and Coptic, all of biblical writings. In total, over 25,000 manuscripts supporting biblical teachings. That's not enough. There, there, there's extensive archaeological findings that corroborate the places, the people, the events spoken about in the Bible. Folks, I know that it's not easy to surrender to something that you don't believe in or have faith in. But I just want to encourage you to do your research. A lot of you, all of you are educated and you study your craft, study the Bible. Because let me tell you, Christianity is a belief system set upon the strong foundation of evidence, reason, science, and logic. Because before there was salvation for us, there was a sacrifice that he had to make. And it was an easy, but our God is always good. 
And he did this so that anyone, which includes you, anybody that's listening to my voice right now online, wherever you are, could call on the name of Jesus, the name above every other name, the name of Jesus, who at one point, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And then your God, when you cry out to him, is going to forgive you of your sins. And he's going to heal your brokenness. And he's going to remove your shame. And he will make you a brand new person. The old is gone. The amazing grace of the goodness of God. Our God, you see, did something for you that you couldn't do for yourself. We can't save ourselves. We can't be good enough. You couldn't be righteous enough, which is why God sent Jesus to die for our sin. And he became sin for us. Folks, you don't have the power to control, but you always have the power to surrender. The question is, what are you trying to control that God wants you to surrender? Is it a relationship? They have to do it the way you want them to do it? Is it your health? Is it the health of somebody else? Is it your finances? Is it your job? Is it your 401k? Is it your kids? Is it the future? What are you trying to control that you know it's not yours to control? You know, one thing I realized that there's really no such thing as a partial control. You can't say, hey, I'm 84% surrendered to Jesus. No, either you're surrendered or you're not. You can't just say, you know, God, I'll trust you with some things, but not this part of my life. I think I got this one. Or, or I trust you to save me, but uh, I'm not going to trust you with my kids because I have certain plans for my kids. Or I'm going to trust you to get me into heaven, but I'm not going to trust you with my job or the health of my loved ones. And, and yet I can tell you that the key to surrender is found in the text that we see Jesus praying. It's two words, and I want you to pay close attention here. They're incredibly important. It is the words if and yet. If and yet. Jesus cried out, my father, if it is possible, if you could take it away, father, I want you to do this. May this cup be taken from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. In other words, real faith starts between the if and the yet. God, if you heal me, heal me. God, if, if you give me that promotion. God, if you let my kids be happy. God, if you do this one thing for me, yet not my will, but your will be done. You know, unfortunately for us, Everything in culture invites us. I mean, it begs us, it, it lures us to live in a way that is contrary to what I'm telling you here, contrary to the gospel, that culture tells us, you know, you take charge, you take control, you make it happen, captain, just do it, it says. But Jesus, again, in Matthew says, whoever finds life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. In other words, to really follow Jesus is to surrender control. And folks, let me tell you, I'm preaching to myself. I, I am there with you because if there's someone that I know who likes to control their outcomes, it's this guy. I am a taskmaster when it comes to trying to control my outcomes. So naturally, this past season, I've had a difficult time. My heart has been for everybody that is here. 
No matter how you may feel about inside or outside or events, I mean, it's been a difficult time, and all I can do it sometimes, like I, I speak Spanish, and so when I want to say, ay Dios mío, ayúdame, por favor, no sé qué está pasando, I just go on and on. And I came to the point where I was forced to choose. Do I try to control or do I surrender it? Because it was affecting everything. And so I've decided to do is to surrender what I can't control and to do what I can and surrender the rest. Any place that I can add value, that I can make a difference, and I'm going to initiate, I'm going to lead, I'm going to activate, but anywhere that I cannot control, which you're realizing that's pretty much everything, I'm going to surround, I mean, I'm going to surrender my control. And again, here's what I found, that surrender is not it is not a one-time event. Surrender, you see, it is a daily choice that we have to make. And here's what I discovered. That our God can do way more with our surrender than he can do with our control. So I'm going to call the band up at this time. And I'm going to share with you that you don't always have the power to control, but you always have the power to surrender. So to those of you either here or online, who are trying so hard to be in control and you just don't know how to let go, you may be 20 inches away from full surrender. You may be 20 inches or so away from knowing the peace on the other side of surrender. And some of you are wondering, what is he talking about? Well, the way I see it, the way I estimate that, for most of you, there's about 20 inches between your knee and the floor. You want to fully surrender your control? You get on your knees. And when you want to be in control, you stand strong. But when you want to surrender, you bend your knees and you bow down before him in the same way that Jesus did in the garden when his soul was overwhelmed to the point of death. And he knelt down before the Father and he cried out and he displaced that faith is between the if and the yet. He says, if you can, if you will, please, please, Father, do it, yet your will be done. Real faith starts between the if and the yet. So as we enter this next season, as we walk out of these doors, as we celebrate what God did for us, what Jesus did for us today, just remember that whatever you're trying to control that isn't yours, give it to him. And remember that his will is not always easy, but, oh, it is always good. You don't always have the power to surrender, but you always have the power. I'm sorry, you don't always have the power to control, but you always have the power to surrender. Will you pray with me? Lord, right now, as we celebrate this great moment, Father, I just ask that you would invade our hearts or that you would invade our homes with the peace that goes beyond our human ability to understand. And to those of you who are even grieving the loss of control, that are still trying to be in control, it might be that relationship or it might be that health or your finances or your job, whatever it is, Whatever you're trying to control, I asked, and God is telling you now that he wants you to surrender it. 
And if that's you in this moment, listen, I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to ask you to do anything because this is Easter. This is between you and your heavenly father. If that is you, that you would just symbolically either raise your hands or even just be bold enough to just lean and bend your knee and just even right where you're at, bow down and kneel before your God and surrender that control. Take this moment. Even if you're listening at home, you can still do this. You can raise up your arms and surrender and say, God, I want to surrender that control. And if that's you, just raise up your hand right now so I can pray for you. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to do anything else. I see your hands. Praise be to Jesus. For those of you that don't even know this Christ that I'm talking about, and you want to be able to surrender, but you get first step for you is to get to know him. If you feel calling you and tugging at your heart right now, I just ask that you would repeat this silently in your heart after me and say, Father, I recognize that you died and that you rose again for my sins. Forgive me of my sins, Father. Take my shame away, Father, and come into my life and be my own personal Savior. And as best as I know how, I will live for you the rest of my life. And if that's you this morning, whether you're listening online or if that's you here, again, every eye is closed and every head is bowed. I'm not going to ask you to do anything, but I want to pray for you. Who has made that commitment this morning? Just raise your hand. Amen. Amen, bro. You can put your hands down. Father, you see the hands. Oh, Heavenly Father, you see those hands. Those hands have a name. And those names matter to you. And so I ask that you would do what only you can do, Father, which is to lead them and guide them in the place that you would have them go. That they would be a different people as they walk out of these doors. Lord, and may you be glorified and may we give you all of the credit for everything that you're doing in our midst. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I just invite you through this next song. We're not done yet, by the way. This next song is so important to us because it continues to give you a chance to respond because we believe that God, through his word, pierces deeper than a two-edged sword. It says that it penetrates the marrow, knowing the hearts of people. So God is still at work. He is here. He is in our midst. So as you just come before this next song, whatever the Lord leads you to do, stand, raise your hand, kneel, you are welcome to do that during this song.